Well, hey, Mission View, good morning. Man, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I spent four years of my life in Canton, Ohio. I'm a graduate of Malone University, played golf there. And uh, it is always very nostalgic for me to come back. Uh, my wife always makes fun of me. I'm like, I'm going to Canton. I get all giddy, and I get to see my friends and roommates and teammates from college. So I uh, was able to spend some time with a, a roommate yesterday and, and saw their new beautiful daughter and was able to spend the weekend with, with Pastor Steve and his family. It's been great. And so I, I just want to say to you, you guys have a fantastic pastor. There's not many times that I get a phone call and hang up from that phone call and say, that's going to be a good fit for men of iron. There's typically a, a pretty big due diligence process that we go through. But I could tell as soon as I got this phone call, I heard the passion in his voice. And I heard the commitment that he wanted to have for his men. And I thought, that's it's going to be a good fit. And so you guys have a great pastor. And I wanted to say this to you as well. I said this this morning to him. I said, I, I sense this. Uh, the spirit of servanthood in your church, people that uh, are thinking outside of themselves. And I don't always get that when we go to churches across the country. You guys are a special church, and I believe that you are going to outgrow this space at Hoover High School. I really believe that. So prepare yourselves. I believe God's going to use this church to do big things in North Canton, Ohio. Now, I just want to start out this morning with a question. How many of you would say, uh, yes, I've visited some type of state, national, or historical monument within the last couple of years. Just raise your hand. Yeah, raise them up. I mean, a lot of people in this room have visited some type of monument. And when you look at the definition of a monument, this is what it says in the dictionary. It says, it's a statue, a building, or other structure erected to commemorate a famous or notable person or event. That is the definition. And monuments are fascinating to me because millions of people from all over the world would travel thousands upon thousands of miles to see a monument. And they would literally go out of their way, spend thousands of dollars, travel with all their kids in chaos to go see a monument, right? I mean, it's fascinating to me. But you see, they're not going out of their way. They're not spending thousands of dollars just to go see a statue, they're not just spending thousands of dollars to travel on vacation just to see a piece of art. Because monuments are symbols of triumph and tragedy. Triumph or tragedy. There's a story behind every monument that we see. And when you go to a monument, you're either going to see it as this is a symbol of triumph or a symbol of tragedy. And it really depends how you look at it. You see, people go to travel thousands of miles to see these things because monuments have a story. They resonate deeply within the souls of people that know their story. I think about Gettysburg. I, I don't live far from Gettysburg, and you can go there, and when you travel the battlefields, and you see these different monuments. I mean, how do you view it? Do you see it as a symbol of triumph because of the historical breakthrough for our country, or do you see it as tragedy because of thousands of lives that were lost? I mean, 9-11, you go to New York City, our country's under attack. Thousands of lives are lost as well, but there's also this kind of this symbol of triumph where you go there now and you see that our country has rebounded. We've rebuilt. We're moving forward. And it really depends how you look at it. It's interesting. Because as I was thinking about this, as God laid this message on my heart, he said, Garrett, if people were to travel thousands of miles and spend thousands of dollars to see maybe a monument that represents your life, would they see it as a symbol of triumph or would they see it as a symbol of tragedy? And that is my question today. 
At the end of our lives, folks, we're all going to die at one point or another. Let's just face the facts, right? When people are standing at your funeral, will they associate our lives with triumph or will they associate our lives with tragedy? If you had the opportunity to visit the monument of your soul, the inside, your heart, and you're standing there, what, what would it look like? What would people associate it with? How would it be portrayed to the outside world? Because this is what God has been teaching me a lot lately. Listen, Garrett, you can portray a lot to the outside world. From the outside, people look at your life and say, he's a good guy. He's got a lot of good things going on. But what's really going on in the inside, Garrett? It's so easy and it's so natural to be so focused on what's going on around us, right? It's so easy and, and it's, it's, it's simple to be focused on the things that we're attaining and the things that we're conquering and the things that we're accomplishing. But see, sometimes we forget about what's going on inside of us. Let me open up in a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for this uh, church. We thank you for these people. We thank you for the leadership. We thank you for each family here today. Father, I pray that this message would be for just one person. <laughs> Father, that you would open our eyes to your word, that you would open our minds to the word. Lord, that it would cause transformation, not just information, but transformation as we move forward. In your name we pray, amen. So what would the monument of your soul look like? How would that be portrayed? I want to use our theme verse today, Ecclesiastes 7.1. Solomon says this, a good name is better than fine perfume. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Now, I'm going to break this verse down a little bit later, but basically what Solomon is saying here is, listen, character, your character, what's on the inside is a lot more important than stuff. It's a lot more important than what you're attaining in life. It's a lot more important than your house. It's a lot more important than how much money you've got in the bank. It's a lot more important than your, your ability to go conquer some things. I recently brought in Ronaldo Wynn. Ronaldo was a ex-NFL uh, defensive end in the, uh, for the Redskins. He played for a couple different teams. He was first-round draft pick, I believe, in 97. And I brought him in to speak to our wrestling team in Pennsylvania. And he, he, uh, he talked about this topic of character versus conduct. And his whole point to our wrestlers, these high school kids, was that, listen, you can have conduct. Conduct is the way that you portray yourself to the outside world. But it doesn't mean you have character. Character is what's going on in the inside. He said, so you can really be a person that you're smart enough to know how to portray yourself to other people, but it doesn't necessarily mean your soul's in the right place. And I thought that was very interesting as he said this, because I thought back to a, a book I just recently read. It was one of the hardest books I've ever read in my entire life. Uh, I would recommend it, but at the same time, if I'm going to recommend it to you, I'm going to tell you, you better buckle up and be prepared. It's a very difficult read. And the book was called The Lonely Man of Faith. And it's by a 19th century rabbi named Joseph, I'm going to try my best here, Soloveitchik. And this gentleman was a rabbi in the 1900s, and he was a world leader in bridging the gap between sort of what the um, ancient text of the law would say, and he would compare that to the modern, modern world. He would bridge that gap a little bit. And he was an expert. And one thing he started to point out in this book that took me back to this whole character and conduct thing 
took me back to this living a monumental life, he started to talk about how there's two different accounts of Adam in the book of Genesis. And I had never really looked at it this way. There's this Adam that's described to us in Genesis 1, and then there's another Adam that's described to us in Genesis 2. And I'm going to talk a little bit about this. But in Genesis 1, God creates Adam, and he doesn't necessarily get into how he made Adam, just that he made him. He made him in his image, and he gave Adam two jobs. He said, listen, Adam, go procreate and subdue the earth. And so let's look here in Genesis 1.27, and then we're going to look at Genesis 1.28. In 1.27, it says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, pretty simple. But then he says this in 128. It says, And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every living creature that moves on the ground. And so this is what he's saying in Genesis 1. He's saying, listen, Adam, this is what you do. I have created you to create. I have made for you to make things. Kind of have dominion. Conquer. Go out and do these things. This is what I've made you to do. But in Genesis 2, there's a different twist that we read about. In Genesis 2, if you look, let's check out verses 7 through 8. It says this. It says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And if you skip forward to verse 15, check this out. It said, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. So in Genesis 2, it's a little bit different. Not only is God saying, this is who you are, this is what I want you to do. God is saying, listen, Adam, I just want you to exist. I want you to cultivate what I'm giving you. I want you to find rest in the garden. I want you to just exist and find me in the things that I've created. It's a completely different kind of twist on who Adam is in Genesis 1. And we know this because of, listen to what the author says here first before I go on to explain. He writes this in the book, and I'm going to read it right from the book. It says, Adam in the first is aggressive. He's bold. He's victory-minded. His motto is success and triumph over the cosmic forces. He engages in creative work, trying to imitate his maker. Now listen to that, trying to imitate his maker, trying to take control, trying to create. And then he says this, Adam II looks for the image of God in every beam of light, in every bud and blossom, in the morning breeze, in the stillness of a starlit evening. He's basically saying, listen, he's finding God in his creation. He's sitting there and he's not trying to go out and conquer and create, but he's, he's existing in what God has already created. He's, he's almost this more humble spirit a little bit. You know what I mean? And so why does this matter? You might be sitting there, Gary, why are you talking about this? Well, let me explain. There's different names that are used for God if you look at the original text in here. In the Genesis 1 account, it's going to be up here on the screen, but in the Genesis 1 account, the name used for God is Elohim. Okay, and when you look at this definition, it basically translates to creator, strong, and mighty. And that makes sense, right? Because in Genesis 1, we see that God tells Adam to go fill the earth and subdue and 
find strength. In Genesis 2, not only is Elohim used, but this other name for God we saw it in worship today was Yahweh. And Yahweh, a couple different translations for this, but means the one who exists, or I am, right? Now, doesn't this make sense? Because in Genesis 2, don't we find the Adam that is told to just exist? Exist in relationship with me and others and the creation that God has given him in the garden. Now, when you fast forward to Genesis 3, what do we see in Genesis 3? What happens? Fall of man, right? Check out this. I never, never realized this before. This is all new to me. But Genesis 3, we find the fall. And as the serpent begins to sort of spin his temptation on Adam and Eve, he's focusing on God Elohim, the strong, mighty, conqueror. And so he's kind of making Adam and Eve forget about Yahweh, the relational God. He's trying to get them to focus on what they can do, what they can have, what they can get, and the strength they could have if they just take the bite. In the pursuit of these things, what ends up happening? They dismiss this second half of them in Genesis 2, and they sacrifice their inner character for the pursuit of what's on the external, right? And eventually what happens is they become liars, they become blamers, they, cowards, okay? Their children become murderers. So what's the point? Well, I believe in the, in the church and in our culture that we live in, and it's not just Christians, it's everybody, we tend to focus more of our lives on this design that God has given us in Genesis 1 than we do in Genesis 2. Now, I just know as a man... I'm kind of wired to go conquer, to kind of go create, to take charge, to take responsibility. I want to provide for my family, right? These things come very naturally for me, but what does not come as natural to me is existing with God and just sitting in creation and giving him the glory that he deserves in the creation and just, just kind of being there and being present. But I believe as a culture, we shift more toward Adam 1, and we have completely dismissed what God has created us to be in this Adam 2 that we've seen in chapter 2. And it's not just us. It's everybody in culture. I had a, a buddy that just recently shared this with me. you got to check this out. He was telling me about this one thing that Google can do. And Google can now measure the word usage across all platforms of media. So they will take old books, uh, newspaper clippings, whatever, and they scan them. And you can type a word in and see its usage over the years. And what types of words are being used now compared to being used years ago. And check out what this report found. It said this. It said the use of words having to do with economics and business have steadily increased over the years, while the language of morality and character building is in steady decline. Usage, usage of words like character, conscience, virtue have all declined over the course of the 20th century. Now check this out. Gratitude is down 49%. Humbleness is down 52%. And kindness is down 56%. You see, our culture is constantly shifting to focus more on what we can accomplish and what we can be rather than really who we are or who we want to become. 
Now I want to get back to this key scripture for today in Ecclesiastes 7.1. Before I kind of get into this, I want to just give it some context. Because in the life of Solomon, we see this man who created. We see a man who conquered. We, saw, we see this man who accomplished a lot, more than any of us could probably ever dream of. Solomon had worldwide wisdom. People would come in from all over the world to listen to what he had to say. He had it all. He is famous for all wisdom, okay? Not just in the scriptures, but with the universe, with finances, with relationships, everything you can imagine. You can read the book of Proverbs, you can read the book of Ecclesiastes, and you can determine that, yes, Solomon was the wisest man to ever live. I mean, he led Israel to its greatest period of wealth. He built storehouse after storehouse after storehouse just to keep up with the blessings that were coming his way. He was out there conquering. He was doing great things. He's also known for building the temple of God in Jerusalem. I mean, this is an incredible achievement. The problem is this, is that in the pursuit of all these achievements, when you read God's word, you find his soul gets off center a little bit. His character gets out of whack. He begins to kind of compromise on some things that maybe he wouldn't have done so before. He begins to marry women from all over the world, which leads to building pagan temples. Not only did he build the temple of God, but he's starting to build pagan temples. His life did not necessarily end very well. His heart grew far from God, as did his values. And I believe here that... Ecclesiastes is kind of written toward the end of Solomon's life. I think it's his way of saying, listen, don't make the same mistakes that I made. Okay, and so that will give this verse some context. But it says up here, again in 7.1, a good name is better than fine perfume in the day of death, better than the day of birth. Why does he mention perfume? Why? Well, it's interesting because we see perfume is mentioned in Jesus' death. Martha breaks this expensive bottle of perfume and pours it over Jesus' feet. And Jesus said that not only was she anointing him as king, but she was also preparing him for his burial, right? And in this culture, people that had great wealth on the outside portrayed themselves well to the outside world. People that had great wealth would often be buried covered with this incense or perfume to mask the smell of their decaying body. So this is, you're getting some context here. Fine perfume would be used to preserve this outward reputation of a dead rich person, basically. And so you put that together with the second half of this verse where it says the day of death is better than the day of birth. Think about that. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And listen, this is what Solomon is saying. He's saying, listen, it is better to end your life known for triumph being a good person, yes, but not just conducting yourself as a good person, truly having the inner character. It's better to be known as a life of triumph than a, rather than a life of tragedy, just having a bunch of stuff and going out and accomplishing a bunch, having a big home, having the fanciest cars, whatever it might be, right? Say, listen. And unfortunately, Solomon sacrificed his character in the pursuit of more. But he's warning us here not to do the same thing. So you've got to kind of look at our trajectory. My buddy asked me this question one time. He said, listen, do you want to be excited about your death because of all the stuff people are going to inherit from you? 
Or do you want people to mourn your death because of how much value and character you brought to your community? Made me stop. Made me think a little bit. My dad always tells me, son, don't expect a whole lot from me when I die. I'll tell you what I got from my dad, though. Character. And so we have to think about our trajectory of where our lives are going. And I believe that we have to think about this question of, are we living monumental lives? Are we living these lives that are considered triumphant? What are people going to think? And so where do we go to kind of figure this whole thing out? Well, we go to God's word. And I believe there's this man named Barnabas, you mentors and protégés. You heard a little bit about this yesterday in the training. But there's this man named Barnabas. And he's known for kind of mentoring the Apostle Paul. And we know the Apostle Paul was, you know, before he makes this, makes this conversion, is the worst of the worst. And, and I believe that kind of Paul is given the credit for building the first century church. But if it were not for Barnabas, I'm not sure that would have happened. And I believe Barnabas gives us a very clear model on how to live a monumental life, a life of triumph in the book of Acts. And so what do we have to do to live a monumental life? Well, the first thing I think that... Uh, a Barnabas does is he's a, he has this attitude of abundance. He's abundant, and I think that's what we need to do. We need to be abundant. And the definition of abundance is this. It's existing or available in large quantities, plentiful. Well, what does that mean, Garrett? Well, let's take a look at Acts 4, verses 36 and 37. It says this. It says, Joseph, that was his name before the apostles gave him the name Barnabas, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, it's an easy scripture to read and kind of move forward with, but let me put this in modern day context here. You see the work that Mission View Church is doing. You are inspired. You feel like God is calling you to sell your home and to take the proceeds of the sale and to bring it to Pastor Steve and say, Pastor Steve, I want this to be used for Mission View. And Pastor Steve's saying, hallelujah, amen, right? But it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in our culture, and it wouldn't make sense in this culture either. He doesn't go sell his land and take the proceeds from that sale and buy more land. He doesn't buy a bigger property. He doesn't reinvest it into a 401k. He doesn't put it into stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. No, he's saying, listen, I see a need, and I'm going to put it at the apostles' feet because of, what the, the, because of the work these guys are doing. But here's the crazy thing. Nowhere in the book of Acts is it even mentioned that any type of a large sum of money is needed by the apostles. It's never even mentioned. But you see, Barnabas... His character, the inside, he's existing well because he sees that what these guys are doing is needed. And so he goes and he sells his land and he puts the proceeds from that sale at the apostles' feet. There's no stipulations. There's no nothing. Here's the funds. Use it. I can remember sitting in my office about three years ago. It was early on in Men of Iron's. Uh, foundation, kind of the beginning years of breaking away and, and establishing our own 501c3. And I remember thinking like, God, I don't know what you're calling us to do or how we're going to do this. And remember he woke me up one night and he said, I want you to stop charging churches. I want you to give the ministry away for free. I want you to be a true resource to the church. Just start giving away for free, Garrett, and trust me. I was like, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. And it was about two days later, I was really questioning 
whether this was the decision we should have made or not, I get a knock on my office door and I go get the door and I look out. It was a, an older woman that I hadn't seen in a while, connected to the ministry some way. And she said, Garrett, listen, I just sold a property down the Chesapeake Bay and I just felt like God is telling me to bless you and that you just need this. It's not a lot, but here I want to give this to you for the ministry. And it was a $10,000 check. Two days after we made that decision. It's abundance. And it's not just about our finances, but it's with our, our time. It's with our talents. Be abundant. Second thing, I believe we need to have this attitude of being a student. We need to be students to live abundant life. We saw that Barnabas was introduced to us there in Acts 4.36. And we don't know much about him from the scriptures, but according to these early traditions that aren't necessarily recorded in the Bible, it's believed that a man named Gamaliel would have taught Barnabas. It would have been his teacher, would have been his mentor. And we can read about Gamaliel in Acts 5.34, but Gamaliel is kind of credited to mentoring Barnabas. He was the most famous Jewish teacher of his time, and he's traditionally listed as one of the heads of the schools. I mean, he was a big deal. He was a big deal in the Jewish culture. And I believe that if we want to live monumental lives, we have to be students. And that's exactly what Barnabas was before he went and mentored Paul. He learned how to follow before he went to go lead. Barnabas had a man in his life that he learned from. He had a man in his life that poured into him. And I believe we can learn a lot here. Because as I go around to churches all across the country and I talk to different men, what I'm finding is that our culture is very quick to step into leadership. Yeah, we want to take charge because that's how God created us in, in Genesis 1. We want to take charge. We want to create. We want to dominate, right? It's easy to step into leadership. Folks, I believe it's a lot harder to follow sometimes than it is to lead. And God is teaching me a very valuable lesson this year. As he's kind of taught me, listen, Gary, I just want you to learn from me. I want you to sit with me in solitude. I want you to sit with me in quiet. And that's sometimes what being a student is all about, is just sitting in solitude. The other part of the being a student is going out and finding someone that you can learn from that will pour into you and taking responsibility for your own growth. This recent study was done uh, on the top CEOs across the world. It finds that top CEOs read four to five books per month. That was convicting. I didn't read four to five books in college, let alone in a month. But it just shows you that these guys are willing to be students and to learn. And I believe that successful students read. Successful students study God's word. Successful students sit and listen. And there's a lot of distraction out there, folks. But I believe Barnabas was, was able to be a student and his mentor was Gamaliel. And Barnabas was tapped into what God wanted him to do. And thirdly, I believe in order to live a monumental life, we need to have this attitude of being servant leaders. And servant leaders understand that leadership is all about sacrifice. Coming out of college, I worked in agricultural uh, lending, and I remember my first boss was a servant leader. It didn't even feel like he was my boss. I loved going to work. He sacrificed for me all the time. He was paying me to work for him, and it didn't feel like a job. It was fantastic. But how do we know that Barnabas was a servant leader? Well, I believe the first part of this, you can put this in your notes. It's not up here on the screen, but I believe that servant leaders go to bat for people when no one else will. 
Servant leaders seek out and assist people in need. And this is exactly what Barnabas did. And this, it's at this point in the story that he really starts to make an impact for the kingdom of Christ. Check this out. It says this in Acts 9, 26 through 28. It says this, when he came to Jerusalem, they're talking about Saul here, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. This was immediately after his conversion. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Listen, when no one else wanted anything to do with Saul, they knew he was the worst of the worst. They knew his past. And so when else, no one else wanted anything to do with him, Barnabas steps up and goes to bat for him. He says, no, listen, this guy is who he says he is. I've seen the, I've seen the conversion take place. But he doesn't just stop there, and servant leaders just don't stop there. They take it to the next level. They say, listen, now that I have kind of gone to bat for you, let me invite you into my journey. And I've seen that this weekend with Mission View. It's been great. I've gone over to people's houses for dinner. Pastor Steve's made me breakfast this morning. I've seen how they kind of go about in their marriage. And it's good stuff. And that's what servant leaders do. They say, listen, come into our journey. Come into our life. Let me show you how I read my Bible. Let me show you how I pray. Let me show you how I raise my kids. Some of the husbands are saying, man, teach my wife how to cook, please. But this is what servant leaders do. And they look for ways to promote people and to challenge them. Once they bring them into their journey, they say, listen, we're not just going to stop here. And we see that in Acts 13, 13. There's this shift in leadership between Barnabas and Paul. All throughout the book of Acts from, you know, chapter 4 up to 13, whenever these two men are mentioned, it says Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Saul, Barnabas and Paul, whatever it says. And then all of a sudden there's this shift in leadership. In Acts 13, 13, you can look it up. It says Paul and his companions. So what was the result of Barnabas saying, listen, come into my journey. Let me put you, come with me. Let me teach you. Let me put you into leadership. All of a sudden, Barnabas steps back, and Paul goes on to do fantastic things, but all because he was a servant leader. And I believe in order to live a monument life, monumental life, a life of triumph, we need to invite people into our journeys. We need to show them how we go about life, and we need to look at them and challenge them. And the last point we're going to make today, how to live a monumental life, I believe this is so crucial as Christians, is, folks, we cannot avoid conflict. We have to face conflict head on. Now, there is a big difference between healthy conflict and unhealthy conflict. Please understand that. But Barnabas and Paul didn't always agree. Things just weren't all, you know, rose petals and butterflies here. These men were persecuted. They risked their lives for the name of Jesus Christ. They were thrown into prison. They were beat. And they had this, disappoint, or this uh, disagreement at one time in Acts 15, 39, it says this. It says, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Imagine that. Two Christians not agreeing. Oh, my goodness. 
But it says they parted company. But here's how I know this conflict was dealt with in the right way. The mission of spreading the gospel, spreading the message of Christ never stopped. Both men continue to do what God called them to do. And so I believe when we have conflict, we need to deal with it. We need to face it head on. We need to act like adults. And what needs to be done in grace, it needs to be done in forgiveness. It needs to be done with understanding. Because here's the deal. When there's an absence of conflict, there's an absence of openness. And when there's an absence of openness, there's an absence of love. And is that not what we're called to do as Christ followers? So I want to ask this question. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. What is your next step in living a monumental life? How do you want to be remembered? And it's not even necessarily about you. But it's what would God want for us? What does he want for us? I want to end with this story as they're going to be playing a little bit. And I'm going to come back up after they're done. But I want to share this story about a woman named Mrs. Fry. And Mrs. Fry um, is kind of credited to being my mother's first spiritual mentor. Now, I want to give this story some context just very quickly and let you know that my mom uh, didn't have the best of uh, childhoods. She, her mother died when she was seven years old. Uh, she was, there was five siblings, or six siblings, I'm sorry, six siblings. Uh, her father was uh, an alcoholic, was very abusive, and so my mom's family was kind of split apart, and they were all shipped to different aunts and uncles in southern Missouri at a very, very young age. And my mom was telling me a story not too, too long ago about how she can remember being seven years old and getting the news that her mom had passed away unexpectedly. And she just remembered living like this, this fear came over her because she knew that she was going to have this dad that just wasn't a good dad. And so fast forward a little bit, my mom's about 17 years old. She decides she's gonna move from Missouri uh, to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania to live with my aunt who was her sister. And this is how my mom and my dad meet. And my mom and my dad at this time don't know, don't know Christ. And they, get, they do things a little bit backwards. My mom got pregnant first. <laughs> and they move into their first home. And being a young mom, with a couple kids at this point, after a couple years of marriage, uh, there was this woman across the street that must have seen the chaos take place in the house. And I wasn't in the picture at this time, but my mom tells a story that this woman walked across the street, knocks on the door and says, I see you're just moving in. My name's Mrs. Fry. Just want to let you know if there's anything I can do for you, just let me know. And so my mom said, thank you. You know, we'll, we'll let you know. And my dad was doing his best to support a family and working around the clock, for, for, to basically be able to provide financially. And one day, Mrs. Fry comes over. It was a Saturday. She said, Debbie, hey, listen, I, I just want to let you know I'll be over first thing tomorrow morning. I'd like to take you and your family to church. And, well, Kenny's working. That's okay. I'll, I'll help you get the kids to church. And so Mrs. Fry shows up at the door and basically comes right in, starts changing diapers, putting clothes on kids, and gets my mom to church and my brothers and, and sister. And this happened a couple weeks. And at the end of that first week, 
she was dropping her back off at her house and she said, hey, Debbie, listen, there's a Monday morning women's Bible study. I'm going to come back tomorrow morning. I'm going to pick you up. There was no option. <laughs> so mom says, okay. So she picks her up for women's Bible study and then she comes back and she goes, oh, women, hey, Debbie, by the way, we have a women's potluck lunch on Wednesdays. I'll be back to pick you up on Wednesday. And this slowly just starts to continue week in and week out. And eventually my mom would come to know Christ and my dad would come to know Christ. But my mom was telling me the story and something about Mrs. Fry, because Mrs. Fry recently passed away within the last couple of years. And I never knew who Mrs. Fry was. I heard her say this name and I said, Mom, I, I've never heard you say this name before. So this is how she's starting to tell me this story. And she said, you know, there's one thing I always remember about Mrs. Fry. She said, your brothers would be running around like a bunch of animals in her mulch beds and her flowers. And typically, the, you know, the typical old lady would say, hey, get out of my mulch bed, get out of my flowers. And she said, Mrs. Fry would sit there on her back patio and she would watch your brothers and she would just smile. So she always sat in her patio, Garrett, and she always had God's word, her Bible out, and she would always write scripture on note cards. And when my mom said that, I realized the significance that Mrs. Fry had and the impact she had on my life. Never met Mrs. Fry, but I can tell you this much. From the time that I was in kindergarten to the time that I was 18 years old and getting ready to graduate high school, there was not a day that I would come down our stairs from our house and walk through our living room and walk into the kitchen and there would be my mom sitting at the table writing out scripture on note cards. Why do I share that story? One woman poured into one woman and that impacted generations to come. So I remember writing a letter to Mrs. Fry as she was dying and I said, Mrs. Fry, you have no clue the impact that you have had. Not only have you impacted my mom and my dad, you've impacted their children who are now impacting their children there's now a ministry called Men of Iron for men. There's a women, women's ministry called Lineage of Love. Your legacy is going to live on for a very long time. All because you decided to live a life that would be considered triumph and monumental. Check out this song. Father, you are all we need. Folks, it's all we need to live a monumental life. He is all we need. So, just like to have everyone bow your heads, please. We're going to wrap up in prayer. Maybe you're here today and you were inspired by today's message. Your heart's beating and your gut's churning. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And I, I just want to encourage you, if you've never made a commitment to have Jesus Christ in your life, I'm going to just ask you just to come on up and talk to me or to talk to Pastor Steve. We'll be up front here after the service. But for those of you that do know Christ, I just want to ask this question. I asked it earlier, but how many of us just need to slow down and stop pursuing the external and we need to start focusing more on the internal because that is ultimately how we will 
live a monumental life. That is where we will gain our strength to live a life of triumph. I really want to encourage everybody this week just to slow down. And to recognize and to be existing with God at your home, in your basement, looking out your window, look at his creation, look for ways to acknowledge him and give him glory. But as you leave here today, maybe it's a conversation in the car or a conversation over lunch, ask this question, what do I need to do? Just one thing. What's one thing I can do to start living a life of triumph? What's one thing I can improve upon? But don't just answer it for yourself. Seek God. What's God telling you in this moment? Folks, I believe Mission View is going to do great things. I really believe that. I believe you've got fantastic leadership in place. I believe there's fantastic people in the body. And I believe if you keep striving forward with this attitude of abundance, this attitude of being students and being discipled and making disciples, and believe with this attitude of being servant leaders, thinking outside of yourself. And then finally, just dealing with the stuff that comes along with playing a church. I believe God's got amazing things in store for this place. And each and every one of you are part of that journey. Each and every one of you have families. Each and every one of us have responsibilities. And that's all part of God's journey, God's story. So Father, I thank you for today. Thank you for each of these people here today, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your forgiveness and the faith that you give us, Lord, to, to move forward and to pursue you. Father, I pray that you would give us the strength to live a monumental life, a life of triumph like Mrs. Fry. Lord, where we would not only impact our families, but we would impact generations to come. For your sake, for your name, and for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.